I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. And we are two Shakespeare nerds who decided to make a podcast about our love for Shakespeare. In this podcast, we will tackle as many dimensions to Shakespeare's plays as we can by looking at the text, examining the historical context in which it was written, and how the text is viewed through modern lenses of feminism, racism, classism, colonialism, nationalism, ableism, all of the isms. We will discuss how his plays shaped both the past and present, and, as actors, how his plays can be responsibly performed today, all while trying our best to approach his works without giving in to bardolatry. So, Shakespeare anyone? Hi, listeners. Elise here to remind you of all the ways you can support the podcast and the work that Courtney and I do. First up, we have a Patreon. Our Patreon patrons receive exclusive bonus content. Every month, we do a roundup of Shakespeare-related content we have found online. We also share Patreon-exclusive bonus episodes of the podcast. These look like extended versions of episodes you've heard here, collaborations with other Shakespeare podcasters, and Courtney and I doing reviews of Shakespeare-adjacent media, like TV shows, movies, and books that are inspired by or loosely based on Shakespeare and Shakespeare plays. Patreon patrons also receive snail mail from the podcast, and some levels even vote on future episodes of our podcast. If you are interested in checking out our Patreon or just the Shakespeare-related names we've given the tiers of support, head to patreon.com slash shakespeareanyone. The link is also in our episode description. After you've done that, please rate, review, and follow us on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Your review might even make it on an episode. You can also follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and tell a friend. Word of mouth is our best form of advertising. Thank you so much for all of the support you give the podcast. Now, on to the episode. Hi, Elise. Hi, Courtney. How's it going? It's going pretty well. How are you? I'm doing well, but I'm also very tired. It's been a very busy week or so. Mm -hmm. And this is like the last bit of my big tasks that I have until I get a little bit of a break. So I'm excited to chat with you today about our topic, but I'm also ready to have a couple days of rest and relaxation. Oh, I'm very excited for you. It's been a busy season for both of us. And it feels like March is right around the corner. And March is like the end of the tunnel. Yes. (laughs) Yes. I can see the light. Yes. So um, what are we talking about today? Today, we are talking about courtship and marriage in early modern England and tying that into our current play, Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. I'm thinking back over the plays that we've covered. And while we've had plays that have certainly had marriages in them, they've been either at the very end of a play like Twelfth Night, where presumably there's a marriage at the end, or there is a marriage uh, between Olivia and Sebastian. But we haven't quite hit a play where marriage is so central to the plot as it is with Romeo and Juliet. Mm -hmm. That's right. And in addition to marriage, the other large component to Romeo and Juliet is the courtship of these two young lovers. Romeo and Juliet's courtship starting at the party, Mm -hmm. the Capulet party, all the way until they get married in secret. And then there are the consequences of Romeo slaying Tybalt and how the two lovers 
deal with this this tragedy mm-hmm. until their death. So courtship is, even though it's a quite quick courtship over the course pretty much of an evening, a day, an evening and a day, mm-hmm. it is still integral to the plot. And we also haven't covered courtship to any large degree. Yeah. I think it's also a common misconception I see with this play is that the plot of Romeo and Juliet, the way that Romeo and Juliet court and marry was okay and typical for the early modern period. And I'm interested to learn more from your research of whether or not that is true, because I see that as a like justification. And I I have a feeling, I have a sense from some other research I've done that it wasn't normal. And it's part of the tragedy of Romeo and Juliet. Yeah. From my research, um, and I read an article called A Room of Their Own, Young Women, Courtship, and the Night in Early Modern England by Eleanor Hubbard. The quick courtship, the courtship that did not have approval of parents and was done in secret, the marriage done in secret, was not normal, but it also did exist. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't like this thing that Shakespeare totally invented for the two lovers, but it also was something that was controversial because early modern marriages were very much, if you were in the gentry class, if you were an aristocrat, it was about aligning families. Mm-hmm. And and my reading also did differentiate between the upper classes and the working or poor English, which I really appreciated. But there are instances where we see this kind of, maybe not quick marriage, I read more about the courtship process, right. but there were these unconventional, inappropriate courtships that went against the formalities that were a part of early modern courtship culture. Mm-hmm. Tell me more about early modern courtship culture. Okay. So I didn't read that much about the actual technical formalities of courtship culture, but we do know from some of our research as well as plays that courtship was, at least for the aristocracy, uh, between a young man, a young unmarried man, a young unmarried woman, and then the families also had a very active role in matchmaking. And oftentimes, the match it was a pragmatic match versus a companionate match. Mm-hmm. But like I said, based on uh, Hubbard's work, there are instances in which courtship was done without supervision from adults. Yeah. And I can add to that. So my reading is from the introduction of Carol Thomas Neely's Broken Nuptials in Shakespeare's Plays. And Neely discusses there that during this time period, there's a shift towards more companionate marriages. So the big shift is not, oh, the family's no longer involved, but it is that now the young man and the young woman getting along and liking each other and being fond of each other is a priority in that courtship, even though it does still involve families and dowries, as compared to the medieval era where it was not companionate. That was when it would have been truly an outlier to um, be friends first, know each other first. Wedded for love. Wedded for love. And in this period, being wedded for love is actually becomes a huge priority as we come out of the Reformation and more humanist ideas become popular. That becomes a big priority culturally across classes. However, in the aristocracy, there is still a a need for parents to be involved to maintain status and their estates. Yeah. And it's certainly not unlike our contemporary courtship and marriage practices where uh, one partner will sometimes ask for permission from a parent to wed Mm -hmm. their girlfriend, boyfriend, their partner. 
And even though it's not technically needed, it is still something that we see right into courtship and marriage to this day. Yeah. Neely also talks about how if they liked each other and the potential partner met all of the qualifications of the that the parent had, then it moved forward. It wasn't like, I like them, mom and dad. Can we get married? Or it could have been like, I like them. Can we get married? They check all these boxes. Okay. Instead of, well, here's this person who checks all these boxes. Do you like each other? Yeah. Yeah. And previous to this period, love and a companionate marriage was actually seen as sinful and like something not to be desired. It was seen as weakening the marriage, according to Neely. Um, that's fascinating because I know from listening to Dr. Eleanor Yanega, who is a scholar of like medieval, the medieval era, there is also this idea within like male culture that if you are attracted to your spouse and if you like have a lot of sex with your spouse, that makes you effeminate. Mm. So it is interesting that in addition to like that concept, liking your wife and wanting to be intimate with your wife makes you effeminate. Having love in the marriage also makes it a weak marriage. Yeah. So here's here's a quick quote about that from Carol Thomas Neely. Quote, advocacy of companionate marriage, the loving sexual partnership of husband and wife, went hand in hand with other changes in attitude that had potentially positive implications for women. Love, once denounced as a dangerous disruptor of marriage, was now decreed essential to it. Celibacy having been demoted by the Reformation, marital sexuality was no longer viewed as a necessary evil, but a positive good, and not only by Protestants, unquote. Okay. This is the ideological shift that people the, in Shakespeare's yeah. time yeah, are experiencing. That the Reformation, the change in the amount of control that the Catholic Church had and the Catholic Church trying to maintain its status against the Protestant Reformation kind of brought about these these changes because celibacy and devoting yourself to God in that way was no longer as important. It was no longer seen as a, a uh, virtue. And instead, love in a marriage was seen as virtuous. Thank you for scaffolding that change, Elise. The courtship process for early modern people was a very public process. Um, like I said earlier, young unmarried men young unmarried women, and then their prospective families were actively involved in um, determining whether or not it was the right fit. And this was often something that, like I said, happened in the daytime. The young unmarried woman was was supervised by likely a matriarch in the family. That was seen as like the acceptable, appropriate way to court. It was public and it was under supervision. And for young women in early modern England, courtship was of critical importance because it offered them a limited but significant chance to determine the course of their future lives. For men and women and their families, the personal and the pragmatic shaped the making of marriage. And like I said before, there was a difference between courtship for the noble classes versus for the poorer classes. So for poor young women, their marriages might come later in life if they are working women. And their path to a bridegroom was likely impeded by poverty rather than patriarchal control. So a poor woman had the challenge of finding a young man with good prospects that would take a rather penniless girl for a bride. And these poorer women often courted on their own time, perhaps while they were working away from home as maidservants. And within this class, within this rank, their parents' approval took a less prevalent role. But for wealthier women their parents took on an active role in matchmaking. And while we might think daughters took a passive role in courtship, 
simply accepting the marriage candidates presented to them by their parents, there are accounts of escapades that suggest the opposite. There was an incident in 1617 in St. Peter Cornhill where Joan Simmons, the daughter of a merchant, asked her maidservant to make a posset, which is a like wine beverage, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and, quote, get all things ready, unquote, when her parents went to bed. What transpired was a posset party consisting of young people staying up, drinking, and Joan and an eligible suitor kissing while her parents were asleep. This and other escapades suggest that young women from wealthy families did sometimes have opportunities to create these like secret spaces for youthful recreation and courtship. I just love that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I want a posset party. And I'm trying to like think, can we see this in some of the parties that are thrown? I think we've mostly seen masks in Shakespeare. I'm like, oh, I wonder if there's any sort of dramatization of posset parties elsewhere in early modern drama. Yeah, I'm not sure. I mean, I mean, also if they're secret, like probably not. They were probably too cool for, you know, these middle-aged playwrights to be writing about. Right. Yeah, this youthful recreation thing. I'm not sure if like mm-hmm. Shakespeare's daughters would have been telling him about posset parties, you know. Yeah. <laughs> so in these instances, if the home were large and free enough, a daughter then, um, and this is Hubbard's analysis, could transform the enclosed domestic space into a freer and more adventurous space for young people, including a separate bedchamber for unmarried women. And this private domestic after-hours space was necessary for young women's potential agency because typically the nocturnal public space was associated with young male culture. Mm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And this is important to note because before the 17th century, Ordinary people and the gentry both shunned the dark. The typical habit of the day was rising early and going to bed early. Uh, Shops closed early. People left taverns and alehouses before dark. And the dark hours were thought to be for the less respectable. And male youths were thought to be inhabitants of the night. And this ties in a little bit to what we talked about last time with manhood and patriarchy. Mm -hmm. But male youths were thought to like live in the space of the night. We do see that a little bit in Romeo and Juliet with Romeo and his friends being out late at night walking the streets, whereas Juliet, you know, yes, the party's in her home, but she's, you know, not seen out and about at all hours like they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. And Hubbard writes that young bachelors use the cover of darkness to mock patriarchal expectations and revel in disorder. And there is one disturbing story that I'm going to share quickly. And it's a story of these Cambridge scholars uh, who found a woman hiding behind a hedge, made her take off her clothes, and whipped her. So part of this inhabiting the night Mm. does involve sexual dominance as like a pillar to a male youth's nighttime activities. And sexual violence. And sexual violence, yes. Luckily, we don't see any of our male youths in Romeo and Juliet displaying those habits, but our Romeo and Juliet characters are definitely reveling. Mm Mm-hmm. And there was generally no sanctioned occasion in which an unmarried woman should be out alone at night. So male youths were allowed to be out at night. Young women, girls were not. There are instances of both legitimate watchmen and civilian men who accosted young women out at night. And young women walking at night were regularly hauled off as quote-unquote night walkers to Bridewell, which is a prison. Mm -hmm. And this is regardless of whether or not they were accused of any sort of sexual offenses. Mm. Yeah. 
so the night was strictly a place for male youths. And due to this, domestic spaces were the safer spaces where young women could socialize. And that included courtship. While that St. Peter Cornhill posset party was conducted in secret, there were some communities in early modern England, even though this is not very common, but there were some communities that formalized nocturnal gatherings. Quote, in 1650, the tailor Leonard Wheatcroft frequently visited his sweetheart in the evening, even spending whole nights with her in deep conversation and loving embraces, unquote. And Wheatcroft's sweetheart, Wheatcroft's sweethearts, that is a tongue twister, <laughs> Wheatcroft's sweetheart's family actually tolerated these visits. And even in the English lowlands, which is where this took place, and I guess the English lowlands of the time had very strict attitudes towards sex. Mm-hmm. Even in the English lowlands, quote, when a marriage was looming, family and society alike were happy to condone a very marked relaxation of the usual tight norms governing sexual relations, unquote. And this premarital nocturnal gathering uh, seems to be evident because there was a significant portion of brides who actually were pregnant at the altar, suggesting that, well, telling us that the bride and groom had had overnight activities with each other. Yeah. Or perhaps an oldest daughter, Susanna, born maybe six months later. Right. Right. There we go. Tying it back to our guy. Yeah. And young rule, the rural juror, a, and young rural women were more likely to find opportunities to escape adult supervision during the courtship process than their urban counterparts. Urban young women mostly found privacy with young men behind hedges or in quiet gardens. London, for example, was very crowded. So London girls really struggled to escape watchful eyes and ears. It was Mm -hmm. hard for them to meet with their intended in secrecy away from the supervision, away from the adults, the elders. For working unmarried women who lived and worked in London, kitchen gossip or a housewife making the rounds made it really difficult for them to find any privacy with anyone that they were potentially interested in courting. Oh, like a nurse constantly coming in. Yeah, or a nurse. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Just like yelling, ladybird, ladybird. Yeah. And nighttime was difficult for a working maidservant as well because apparently oftentimes maidservants slept in a trundle bed in the same room as their master and mistress or wherever the bed would fit. So in kitchens, halls, shops. So this like nocturnal youth culture and courtship that we see in the uh St. Peter Cornhill incident, the posset party. Mm-hmm was usually quite off-limits to maidservants. While it was quite off-limits to maidservants in London, if the household was large enough or luxurious enough and it offered additional rooms for escapades, we could see households with these nocturnal festivities and nocturnal courtships. However, even some substantial households didn't offer young women private rooms or beds. Some young women shared rooms or beds with others, including sisters, mm. cousins, waiting women, or chambermaids. There's this autobiographical text by an aristocrat named Anne Clifford, who recalled that in 1603, when she was 13 years old, she shared a bed with other young ladies, and this caused them to form intimate friendships. Anne doesn't reveal what the girls talked about or what they did, but young girls formed closeness to each other through companionship in the bedchamber. Another young unmarried aristocrat, Mary Fox, shared a bed with her parents' maidservant, Elizabeth Page, 
And this shared space allowed the two to confess secrets to each other, such as when she asked Elizabeth if she had ever, quote, had to do with any man, unquote, and shared with her maidservant that she had had, um, had twice had sex with a Mr. William Millwar Millward. English names are the worst. <laughs> with a Mr. William Millward. And this type of intimate relationship is interesting to me because the early modern bed, according to Lena Cohen Orlin, appears relatively infrequently as sites of sexual transgressions. The bed was like seen as less of a place where affairs were happening. Thank you. Yeah, yeah where affairs were happening. And I'm sure that there also is space within this like young women sharing beds and sharing rooms phenomenon to examine like um, homoerotic relationships examine like lesbianism within mm -hmm. early modern context but my reading doesn't talk about that so I just wanted to throw that out that I was like oh like I'm thinking of Helena and Hermia and yeah. other really close female characters in Shakespeare's canon yeah Beatrice and Hero exactly yeah. yeah they do share a bedroom and uh Margaret has access to the bedroom too because that's how the whole deceit happens is that Margaret's in the bedroom having a good time with Baraccio mm -hmm. and is seen out the window by Claudio right? right so yeah they all share like bedrooms together yeah and then at the end of the play Beatrice is able to corroborate that Hero didn't have any sort of affair because mm -hmm. she was like, oh, I sleep every single night in the same room as her. Yeah. And this didn't happen. Yeah. But this was a, a very common thing for young girls and young women. They did not get privacy, but it did help to develop like female friendships and companionship mm -hmm. to whatever degree that was. And at this point, I've talked a lot about working class women and women without private rooms. Um, so spaces where there's little to no opportunities for night courting. However, when a household did have enough space, night courting did occur. Mm -hmm. There is one story of Elizabeth Willoughby, a gentlewoman who entered service in a noble house. And I guess like during this period, even gentlewomen would work temporarily in other houses. So Elizabeth Willoughby was one of those gentlewomen who entered service in a noble house. And she sued a guy named John Goodyear for a matrimonial contract. And most of her fellow maidservants supported her case. However, this there was a group of men who challenged her claim for a matrimonial contract with John Goodyear by citing her close friendship and romantic lives. Allegedly, Elizabeth and her friend Anne Johnson entertained young men who climbed, quote, into the chamber through the window, unquote, at night. Elizabeth was not accused of sexual laxity, but was reported to have had numerous suitors, um, and this alleged courtship took place at night. So when these night courtings were available to the youths, I feel so old saying that to the youths, to young people, <laughs> when night courting was available to young people, these were festivities that were away from authority and mm -hmm. the moral surveillance of their elders. So in a courtship culture that is very reliant on or very dependent and persistent on having supervision to make sure nothing goes awry and there's nothing indecent. Mm -hmm. These are the occasions where young people could court without some elder looking over their shoulder. Yeah. And we hear about that late night private room courting in Hamlet, right? Hamlet mm. has been known to 
visit Ophelia in her private bedchamber late at night. And at the top of the show, Laertes is saying, like, just don't do it. Don't do it while I'm gone. Laertes and Polonius are both like, maybe stop this. Yeah. Because you, get, you we don't know if he's for real or not. Yeah. He could have ulterior motives. And then also mm-hmm. in the case of examining, like, Ophelia's death, like you did with the female agency, mm-hmm. this would be an opportunity where Hamlet and... Ophelia could have had premarital sex and gotten pregnant out of wedlock. Yeah. That's a very good poll. Uh, This is actually a great segue into my next section about these night courtings. In spite of all the merriment, like who doesn't want to have a posset party? There was a great risk for unmarried women and their reputations. Mm -hmm. While they did allow suitors into their homes, from my reading, it was primarily young women having their homes opened, their private domestic spaces opened up for male suitors to come and spend private time with them or party with multiple other individuals, whether it be a sibling, a cousin, even like servants um, were oftentimes at these like night courtings if it was a, a larger event. There was a heavy price for this daring. An example of that is, remember the uh, posset party that I talked about? The young gentlewoman who hosted this posset party and was kissing her intended, this gentlewoman's name was Joan Simons, and there was a legal suit that followed her courtship with her intended, James Cartwright, who claimed that the two had entered a matrimonial contract. Apparently, Joan did love James, but she continued to claim that her promise to marry him was contingent on his proving an amount of wealth and estate that her father would approve. So she is choosing a man that she loves, Mm -hmm. but it is still contingent on her father's approval. The problem here was that James had come into a lot of money very quickly. Mm -hmm. And Joan was trying to get James to confess how he had earned all of that money. He was a merchant's apprentice. He was actually the apprentice to her father. And it was very sus that he had earned so much in such short amount of time and Mm -hmm. her and her father wanted to know how he came into the wealth and he when we know how much money you you make Mm -hmm. how did you get this wealthy yeah Mm -hmm. and he wouldn't he wouldn't share how he got his wealth Mm -hmm. and it turns out that like she and her father were quite flexible to the arrangement but james just wouldn't share how he accumulated his wealth and the courtship to james was off and after the courtship was off her father bribed her to take other offers And the reason he had to bribe Joan is because Joan still loved James and wouldn't take any other, Mm -hmm. like she refused to to even consider other options. And this is quite close to Romeo and Juliet Mm -hmm. in her own deposition, because this did go to court. Joan said that her father offered her 3,000 pounds to marry one Sir John Suckling. And her father threatened that if she, quote, would not give entertainment to Suckling, he would presently turn her out of doors, unquote. Very much like what we see in Romeo and Juliet when Juliet says that she won't marry Paris and tries to exert her agency that she's been promised she has. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And Joan continued to press James to confess how he accumulated his wealth, but James continued to remain silent. And so it seems Joan still wanted to marry James, but James wouldn't provide her with this information. And one theory is that James accumulated his wealth by stealing from her master, who again, is Jones's father. And this claim for a matrimonial contract and the 
silence on his wealth led up to the the posset party. And so there was one occasion where Joan did have James over while her parents were sleeping for the posset party. And there was another occasion in which James, uninvited, came to her bedroom and stayed the night. Another night courtship, if you will. Mm -hmm. And he stayed overnight. And the next morning, he hid in the closet until her father mm. went to the exchange. He was a merchant. He worked for some exchange. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And once her father left, then James was let out of the closet and let out to go. Um, but following the two nighttime visits, Joan continued that she would not marry James without her father's consent. And James would not meet with her father to speak about his fortunes. And James, I guess, still believed that contract and took her to court. Mm -hmm. Unluckily for Joan, all of this was now public knowledge, but luckily for her, her maidservant, Mary Mason, shared a bedchamber with Joan, and this allowed for her father to assert that the couple did not spend the night together alone because Mary was there. Mm -hmm. Mary Mason did not dispose in the court case, so we don't know for sure if Joan and James did have sex that night, but at least for the sake of Joan's dignity and reputation... Mary's presence was enough to say, oh, nothing indecent happened. And Joan and James did not marry. That was a failed courtship. Mm. Yeah. And that's where my reading ends. In conclusion, courtship, though it was often surveilled by elders, did exist in the dark through night courtship. And it wasn't common that these night courtships happened, or we don't actually know how often they happened, but we do have written records of some night courtships mm -hmm. and the nighttime also was a place where like confidences between unmarried young women were exchanged um, like I said secret courtships took place and this is really a hushed youth culture that allowed young women some space for agency in a culture that shut them up in domestic spaces yeah going off of that as I said earlier and then getting a little bit more into like what marriage was looking like and the changes that were happening to the institution of marriage during this time. As I mentioned earlier, the biggest shift is moving towards companionate marriage and away from these arranged marriages that are purely for the preservation of estates and family lines. And love becomes really more central. Love and consent become more central to the marriage process and the institution of marriage. So as you mentioned, and my reading agreed, this doesn't mean that arranged marriages and family involvement went away completely. Um, it did become a sort of area of contention and negotiation between generations because you had these, the generation of parents who had been in these more arranged marriages, especially when we're look at, looking at aristocratic classes, um, now being confronted with a change in culture and their children, the culture that their children are being raised in, which puts love and consent at the center of a marriage. Hmm. There are a couple things that really factor into how, when there is an arrangement, how that arrangement is happening. The aristocratic class at this time was shrinking and was largely in decline, whereas a merchant class like William Shakespeare himself was a part of was growing in wealth. So like we see also in a completely different set of uh, media, uh, Downton Abbey, mm. you can have a estate and we also see it in like Pride and Prejudice and like, like later periods, we have these aristocratic families who 
have estates but are cash poor mm. so they while they have the titles and the aristocracy they do not have um suitable matches within their own class mm-hmm. yeah and so according to neely quote heirs from the peerage needed to marry lower born brides from the expanding mercantile class whose large dowries would restore depleted family reserves unquote so we see that in um i like downton abbey as an example but like the mom and dad of uh the family that's mm-hmm. literally what their marriage is yeah. is that he yeah he owned the estate and she was he marries the american she was an american heiress right yeah. to bring money into the estate and at the same time as this mercantile class is growing there is a uh, wealth of daughters eligible daughters and a limited number of male heirs in mm-hmm. aristocratic families so the competition for marriage led to the doubling size of the size of the average dowry and an increase in the ratio of dowry to jointure. The dowry is what the bride brings into the wedding, and families would gather objects, not just cash, but also valuable objects, furniture, and have it displayed in their house. It's like, this is my daughter's dowry. Don't you want to marry her? The grooms would bring in what was called a jointure, which was essentially similarly what they would immediately inherit. However, once, once they were married, it all belonged to the husband. So the wife didn't have any like rights to keep her stuff legally. Legally, it went from her family to his family. Her family to him. Yeah. Yeah. I guess. Yeah. That's what I mean. Her family to him. Yeah. So fathers, especially in aristocratic families, did continue to betroth their children before they reached the age of consent, which at that time was 12, and also provision in their wills how their daughter should be married off or their marriage prospects which we see in Merchant of Venice. And then Mm -hmm. additionally, if they had wards, they had even more control over who their wards married, which we see in All's Well That Ends Well with Helen and Bertram. Mm -hmm. It's basically not up to them who they marry. right? And they can be, according to Neely, quote, auctioned off to the highest bidder and they had no appeal to parental affection, unquote, if you were a ward of the state or if you were someone's ward. Mm -hmm. So that is going on. And that is a factor, especially for the aristocrats but more and more the need for love and consent between the two people to be married um, is increasingly important and one thing that this does in the institution of marriage is it actually removes the double standard of cuckoldry so up until this point you know men could be cuckolds they could be cuckolded by their wives but women there was no female equivalent if your husband had extramarital affairs right if your wife did you know, you were shamed as a cuckold, but women, it was just expected that men would do this. Right. As the companion at marriage comes to the forefront, the double standard is removed because now the sexual relationship between a husband and wife for the purposes of procreation and with love and consent at the center is so important that now men are also starting to be shamed for stepping out on their wives. Interesting. I didn't realize that. Yeah. And according to Neely, quote, since a harmonious sexual companionship requires the consent and compatibility of the couple, enforced marriage and the custom of wardship were increasingly condemned. And since sexual satisfaction was to be found in marriage by husband as well as wife, adultery was condemned for both and the double standard denounced as it is in Shakespeare's plays directly by Amelia and Othello and indirectly by the paucity of either wayward wives or philandering husbands throughout the canon, unquote. To sum that up, while we do have these practices of wardship and 
enforced marriage and there's this conflict between the generations we are seeing uh, enforced marriage and wardship decrease in frequency and popularity from both the state and church becoming condemned we see in literature that's published at the time including sermons published sermons a denouncing of those things in favor of companionate marriage and that's really interesting to me because i'm thinking of the contradictions that exist in lord capulet Mm -hmm. because in the beginning of the play he tells paris that he wants to wait till juliet is a few more years older and then he also wants her to have a say in her marriage and then after tybalt's death Mm -hmm. he reverts to that enforced marriage right and it it does create some some excellent questions for a production about where lord capulet and lady capulet and how much love is at the center of their marriage being the the older generation and where that changed yeah after tybalt's death he's like all for enforced marriage probably because literally his heir is gone and now juliet has to get married to someone because tybalt would have been most likely his actual heir right in terms of male line yeah yeah so it does sort of explain where this like this seemingly 180 comes from is like all of a sudden everything rests on juliet yeah because juliet is an only child mm-hmm. and as far as we know tybalt is the only nephew the only male in line mm-hmm. for the estate and you know all yeah, of that to be the next lord be capulet next lord. exactly lord capulet does like paris so if he's considering like who is following me i want juliet's husband to be someone i approve of versus some guy that she chooses mm-hmm. um neely does point out that this doesn't mean that like women all of a sudden had like rights or gained much of anything other than they didn't have to be married to somebody that they hated there were increased pressures on women's chastity because now you had love at the center of a marriage so being chaste was the number one thing you could be as a woman until you were married and then chastity was that you were only having sexual relations with this one person even after that person's death so widows continued to be expected to continue to be chaste after the death of their husbands and so it's not like great gains for women but it is a move away from the enforced marriage that we see in Romeo and Juliet between Paris and Juliet and towards a companionate marriage like we see with hero Claudio, Benedict Beatrice, Romeo and Juliet, um, that they actually like each other and they want to be married. For me, that adds an interesting color on top of a production of Romeo and Juliet where this thing that like the all of society is saying, this is what we should be doing. This is how marriage should be is companionate and loving and we should be able to marry the people that we love. Here we have two young people who, because of their family's baggage, aren't able to do that, and in the face of an enforced marriage, end up dead. Yeah. Taking this relevant conversation about who you marry and why in Shakespeare's time, adding this much larger barrier, which is the blood feud, Mm -hmm. and then seeing that play out is a very interesting way to examine the play. Because I think that because this is not a part of our courtship marriage culture. At least for Westerners. For Westerners. For Westerners, Westerners, yeah. yeah. Thank you. For Westerners, it's not as much a part of our courtship and our marriage culture. But um, so that makes it a little bit distant to us. Mm -hmm. 
the motivations for these characters and the reason why, like, why can't Romeo and Juliet just end up together? Mm -hmm. Like, how bad is this blood feud? But it could be this, alleg not allegory, I guess. Greater commentary. Greater on... commentary on this very, very popular shift in marriage expectations. Yeah. It could make it sadder, I think, is what we're hovering around. Is that for Shakespeare's audiences, it could have been even sadder that here were these two who found each other, who would be appropriate matches for each other if only this one thing didn't exist, right? Mm -hmm. And even Lord Capulet says that, like, Romeo's a good guy and he's, you know, heard nothing but good things about him. He's somebody that Capulet would likely approve of if he just wasn't a Montague. Yeah. And that might have just made this tragedy more tragic for Shakespeare's audience, I think. Yeah, I agree with that. I'm thinking a lot about how how risky Romeo and Juliet's courtship really was mm. in terms of acceptability. Like we're talking about, we were talking about marriage and how much sadder the end is to potentially to a early modern audience because of this change from enforced marriage to companion marriage. I'm also thinking about how risky it was or could have been seen for Romeo to be in the hedges at nighttime, courting mm -hmm. Juliet from the balcony, sneaking up into her bedroom. Yeah. Luckily, she's an only child who doesn't have a nurse sleeping in the bed or in the room with her. And just how risky this courtship and marriage was for these two characters. And even though for a modern audience, we might be like, because we've had this story for 400 years, it's been done over and over and over again. But for Shakespeare's audience, the stakes were so high and the tragedy was so great mm -hmm. because of their practices and what they understood. Yeah. Yeah. And what a way to wrap it up. That is marriage and courtship in Shakespeare's time. Thank you for listening. I'm Courtney Smith. And I'm Elise Sharp. This is Shakespeare Anyone. Thank you so much for listening to Shakespeare Anyone. Works referenced in this episode are available in the episode description. Our theme music is Never Ending Minute by Sounds Like Sander. If you would like to support us, it would help us out if you would hit the subscribe button, like us, leave a comment, write a review, share us on social media, tell a friend about us, all the things. We'd appreciate it. You can also support the podcast at patreon.com slash Shakespeare Anyone. Patreon patrons get access to exclusive bonus content throughout the year. The link is also in the episode description. For more, you can visit our website, shakespeareanyone.com, follow us on Instagram at shakespeareanyonepod, or Twitter at shakespeareanyone. For Twitter, that's shakespeareany and the number one. Every other platform is spelled out like the name of the podcast. Now, because you listened all the way to the end of the credits, here's a completely random Shakespeare quote for you. From Richard III, Act Three, Scene 7, said by Richard Gloucester. I do suspect I have done some offense that seems disgracious in the city's eye, and that you come to reprehend my ignorance.